Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm John Elledge and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast, coming to you from our, our podcast cupboard, which today smells suspiciously like it's been used as a changing room by a bunch of teenage boys. It smells very much of links for reasons which I, I don't really know what's going on there. There will be questions later. Anyway, this is the first the first Skylines of a bold new era. As you will, you will know if you listened last time, we are going fortnightly rather than weekly, so sorry about that. But the quid pro quo is that we are almost certainly going to sound better because we have an exciting new producer, a chap called Nick Hilton, who is, uh, as the producer, he's going to be the first to hear this, so hi Nick. Nick is uh, the producer of other podcasts, including Polling Politics with Joe Lyman and a former friend of the podcast, Marie LeConte. He used to work at The Spectator, but we won't hold that against him. And he has a quite excellent dog who is probably on Instagram. Dogs these days generally are, in my experience. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd look into that. We're, we're very grateful to have Nick around, not least because, true to form, this is going to be a slightly difficult job for him because it's one of those episodes I may have ever so slightly recorded in a slightly echoey conference room on my phone. But this week we are coming back to one of our regular subjects. We're going to talk about housing in London and particularly we're going to talk about the uh, the vex question of how to get more council housing built with the, with the Centre for London. I will let this week's guest introduce herself. So I'm Victoria Pinoncelli. I'm research manager at Centre for London, which is London's dedicated think tank. And you've been doing some work on, on council housing and lack thereof, I believe. Well, yes, I've been. So we've been publishing a report, which I was the co-author of, which looks at council-led house building in London. And so effectively that is building you know, there is a great need for council housing in London because there's been a decline in the number of social housing. But the report focuses more on delivery of new houses by councils. Sure. So let's let's kind of start with some, like, do you have any numbers? How many homes in London are councils delivering at the moment, roughly? So actually, because they've been able to do that because of new powers, we've been looking at how many homes we've got in the pipeline to be delivered within approximately the next five years. So for the report, we only looked at direct delivery and wholly owned council companies, which are approaches which are primarily led by councils rather than 
in partnership with other actors such as private developers, housing associations. So effectively councils are employing people to build houses for them and they will retain the ownership, is that what that means? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's really, the reason why we did that is because we wanted to try to get a sense of the additional housing that would be delivered if councils were more involved. That wouldn't replace housing that would have been built otherwise, for instance, like, you know, through joint ventures with private developers. Sure. And how many, roughly, are councils coming forward with at the moment? So, roughly, 23,500 is what is to be delivered within the next five years. Okay, so that's five years worth. Yeah. So that's under 5,000 a year. I mean, I assume this is lumpy, Mm -hmm. but on average, it will be under 5,000 a year. Yeah which is about one-twelfth of London's housing needs, right? This is quite a small number. We, so we looked at this number, this 23,000. It represents about 10% of London plan targets, you right. know, in a kind of an annualised way for councils. So you are right that it is kind of a small it, part of like the, of London's housing need, a bit over one-twelfth. However, what is important is what it means in terms of sites that are being built on because a lot of councils are building on infield sites, small sites that other actors just wouldn't tackle. And also because up till now, like councils had been playing a very extremely marginal role in like new house building in London, probably around 1%. So if you think about the need to diversify housing providers, it's, could, it's quite important potentially. And actually what we're saying is that if every council was doing this 10% that is currently the average, if they, you know, if they did that, because some councils are doing more 20%, some councils are doing more 2%, mm-hmm. but if every council was able to kind of scale up to that level, then you could get 37,000 homes. Okay, and that's, that is a significant contribution at that point. That's a much bigger number, right? Yeah, it is. So getting to the weeds a bit on this in a second, but what's the case for, for councils building houses again? To play devil's advocate, why can't we just let the market do this? Why do councils need to get involved? Mm. Well, one of the big reasons why we can't only let the market do this is because the market, you know, private developers, they operate for their shareholders, they are market actors. And in, the, in this context, it makes sense for them not to speed housing delivery too much. So, you know, in like technical terms, that's what you call the absorption rate. Mm-hmm. They want to make sure that they build homes at a speed and scale, which means that they can maintain house prices. And it makes sense for them to behave that way. It's what a rational market actor would do. However, in terms of like London's housing needs, you can see that this represents a problem. So for that reason, it's important that other actors, so housing associations, which play a role already, but also councils kind of come in a little bit. And I think it's it's especially it's you know it's starting to get recognised more, uh, maybe by government. So, for instance, commissioning like Sir Oliver Letwin to do a review of build out rates and to look at why there is there such a big difference between planning permission and what actually get built. And one of the reasons why that difference is happening is because of this absorption rate. So, at the most basic level, if the market starts, if prices start dropping, house builders stop building because they wouldn't make the profit they need to kind of... It's it's not so much they'd lose money, more that they'd suddenly look like a takeover target, as I understand it, if their profit margins go down. And obviously, they don't want to do that. So in the event of prices wobbling a bit, they tend to slow up the delivery rate. Yeah. So councils could presumably act as a sort of counter-cyclical provider, right? Yeah, exactly. What about... I mean, this is... We're talking largely in terms of build rates here, but what, in ter- what about in terms of 
they're literally being affordable housing provision for people uh, at the sort of lower earning end of the labour market. Like, where does that sort of fit into the debate? That's an interesting question. So I think councils, as you say, can act as like a counter-cyclical. They also, you know, do this for different reasons. I mean, there's two models that we look at and that are quite different. So for instance, direct delivery is really, a lot of councils have managed to keep doing this, although in small numbers, that's really kind of using in-house team on, you know, kind of council land, using like revenue from kind of council sales and like, you know, building on their council stock. And often what gets delivered for that is like, you know, council house building as you think about it, as in social housing. But a lot of councils have also been taking the approach to set up separate commercial companies, which the Localism Act has allowed them to do. And that's a bit different, the type of housing that they delivered through that. It tends to be more around the affordable rent, Mm. kind of level of affordability, so more around 80%, 65% in some cases. But This is the sort of Orwellian definition of affordable rent, where it doesn't actually mean affordable, it just means 80% of market rent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I still think it's more, in some cases, it's more affordable to have a home which is, you know, 65% of like market rates rather than typical house for sale. And also, effectively, they, I think they want to kind of meet the needs of their population. So, you know, in terms of providing social rented homes, but also houses for like the squeeze middle, as in people that are not eligible for council housing, but that can't quite afford like, you know, let's say like, private market rent as in getting a good quality home or being able to kind of buy a home or even being able to kind of access shared ownership. But the issue with the tenures and the affordability is that councils currently have very little subsidy they can use. So they have to cross-subsidize these homes and in many cases it means that because of the price of land, they deliver affordable homes, but they have to cross-subsidize them with like market-rented homes or for sale, a bit like a housing association would do, for instance. And actually, one of the things currently, there's a consultation on right-to-buy receipts, which has been released by government as part of the social housing green paper. And it's also one of the things we're calling for in the report. We say, ultimately, if you want councils to build more and if you want them to build more affordable housing products you need to remove a lot of the restraints that they have in terms of funding like more affordable homes because currently there are a lot of them. Do you mean in terms of like they don't necessarily benefit from their own investment because of right to buy is that the kind of thing you're thinking? Yeah so for instance direct delivery that's that's the case with local housing companies it's not very clear currently whether this would be subject to right to buy. Um, So this was actually my next question what's the advantage of doing a sort of Uh, a council-owned housing company as opposed to direct delivery. Is this the main reason that you might escape right to buy that way or are there other advantages from that kind of arm's length way of doing it? Well, I think there's like, there's more advantages. So, you know, potentially escaping right to buy is is a good one. It gives you more flexibility. So for instance, you can use money from the general fund. A lot of councils have been doing direct delivery through borrowing through their housing revenue account headroom. But a lot of councils don't have headroom in London, as it means that they can't borrow more money. So effectively, they're a bit stuck. So setting up a wholly owned housing company allows you to borrow for the general fund and borrow money for a whole range of other mechanisms and effectively to deliver housing, but a bit in a more flexible way. It also means that with a local housing company, one of the drivers actually behind this renewed like council house building is to generate revenue for councils mm. in the context of austerity. 
we all know that like London boroughs and all the local authorities in the country have been like suffering quite heavy cuts and they have to you know pay for various of responsibility so with a local housing company what is good is that you can use like if you get some benefits from providing affordable housing or build to rent product style, for instance, like Newham has got like a set up a housing company called Red Door Venture, which is clearly private rented sector, you can get that continuous like stream of revenue, which allows you to kind of fulfill your areas of council responsibility. I mean, in the report, we do say that even though it's understandable that, you know, councils want to generate revenue for the council but they also want to you know, build more housing because for a lot of them that is the case. They have to be quite clear about what it is that they want to do because sometimes the two kind of conflict mm. a little bit. Sure. In terms of, you said that some councils are, are building a lot more than others. Is there any kind of pattern towards the varying levels of enthusiasm? Like are we, like, are we seeing councils of one party or one sort of geographical profile very much focused on this like, I'm just wondering if it's like inner London Labour boroughs that are really going for this while like maybe Bromley is not so much is that yeah. is that about right so interestingly I thought that there'd be a big difference between inner London and outer London there isn't it's actually a similar level of you know building compared to their London plan targets which is interesting because mm. obviously outer London like the, if you look at the draft new London plan targets they've really increased quite a lot for outer London boroughs in terms of politics, it is actually a cross-party thing. So, for instance, Sutton, which is Lib Dem-led, is doing direct delivery. Bexley has got a housing company. But it is true that a lot of, like, maybe labour borrowers are probably among some of the more, more active borrowers. Mm-hmm. Also, in some cases, because there are borrowers with, you know, growth borrowers like Croydon, for instance, or a borough like Barking and Dagenham, which has got, like, a lot of, like, land developed. Yeah, no, Barking Dagenham, uh, we talk about a surprising amount on this podcast, but I think that the Barking Riverside area is one of the biggest bits of, like, essentially vacant land mm. in Greater London. Yeah. Where you could put, like, 20,000 homes or something. The problem being it's a industrially contaminated floodplain with no transport links. But, you know, if you can just work out how to do with that, then it yeah, would be exactly. fantastic. So how about the enthusiasm from national government? Do you think... I mean, we have, we have had many, many decades of conservative politicians not being keen on the idea of council housing and increasingly not keen on the idea of council anything. Do you think a conservative government is ready to get back on board with the idea of council housing? I think they are, because if you look at the housing white paper, February 2017, they talk a lot about the role of councils in like new housing delivery and how councils should be doing more, etc. And I mean, it's interesting that effectively it's a conservative government that has given a lot of powers to councils to set up this wholly owned development companies. That said, as I've mentioned before, there's also a lot of restriction on councils replacing existing council housing. So for instance, around right to buy, I think in London, like it takes around 1.6 right-to-buy receipts just to replace one right-to-buy, a, ho- a home that was sold through right-to-buy. So that makes it very difficult for councils because the discounts in London are quite big for right-to-buy. It's very hard. The way you have to spend your receipts, you can only spend 30% of your receipts on new build costs if it's a time-limited. So it's quite hard for councils to really replace social housing. So I would say, you know, in light of this... They probably don't support councils as much as they could. 
There's been some signs of change, for instance, with Treasury last year announcing that they would increase um, the amount that local councils can borrow to build more social housing. And actually, they gave half of the country's share to London, which is you know, quite impressive. But government could, could do more. I have found it striking recently that I have heard a number of conservatives, not necessarily politicians, but like conservative people from like right-wing think tanks and so on, some very right-wing think tanks like probably the full-on Thatcherite stuff, say, yeah, basically, I just think we need to get the state building again, which is a bit of a reversal of like mm. the sort of long-term <laughs> consensus of, of conservative politics, really. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Just breaking in here to to have the latest instalment of our, our occasional Ask the Experts section with the uh, Centre for Cities. I'm here with Chief Executive Andrew Carter. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? Uh, very well, John. Very well, very well. Thank you for letting me come and see you again. Pleasure. Last time in this slot, we were talking a little bit about automation and how that's going to affect the, the British economy. And this is this is a conversation I hear snatches of all the time that it's going to destroy a load of jobs and that destroy people's livelihoods. It's going to be very traumatic and so on. And what I never understand is, you know, we've been through this before. We've had, depending on how you count, like somewhere between one and three previous industrial revolutions that have totally changed the way the economy works. And they have destroyed a whole load of jobs, but they've also generated much better jobs. And we've all got richer, to the first approximation. Yep. So... Why is this different? Why are experts panicking about the effect this is going to have as if it's only downside, as if suddenly everyone's going to be out of work? Yeah, so first off, I think you're, you know, you're spot on in a sense. You know, we did some work a while back looking at urban economic change across our cities from 1911 through until the present day. And if you look at the jobs, the number, the totality of jobs in our cities, they've increased by 60% over that period. Right. So in a sense, there are more jobs today than there were there were 100 years ago. And the nature of those jobs has, has changed quite dramatically. You know, back in 1911, you know, a significant proportion of jobs would have been in uh, domestic labor. 
you know, so uh, either working as kind of maids or manservants in places or laundry kind of functions. A lot of that has disappeared through automation. The laundromat, you know, is done for, you know, the washerwoman or the washerman of, you know, the days gone by. So the, the kind of nature of, of jobs has, has changed. There's a worry that the scale of the impending change will be more significant. I think there is a kind of worry around around that. I think there's also a worry so that, you know that the the overall impact will be bigger than previous. I, I'm a bit skeptical. You mean in uh, terms of that. like the, the share of the labour market yeah. is going to be yeah. You know, if you think about the jobs, at, you know, at risk as it were, um, you know, there's a worry that automation will will reach into larger larger amounts of the of the jobs market than previously. I have some skepticism around that, but I also think there's a kind of worry that our ability to respond to that is ever more challenging in a sense of, you know, the jobs that are likely to come about into the future will require more skills, more education. And we kind of struggle sometimes to get more of that into our into our population. So I think there's a kind of worry about our, our degree to ability to respond and the, I think the, the scale of the, um, the overall problem. What about the speed of the change? Is that a factor here? Well, I think so. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about... Uh, the 1970s and 1980s and the manufacturing restructuring that we went through, as I was saying earlier podcast, that was quite a dramatic change and it happened in a relatively short order of space. And, and our ability to respond when things happen quite dramatically and, and quite quickly, that has a bigger effect, I think, in some respects and causes larger scarring in places than actually stuff that is imperceptible in some, in some regards. So I think there is a worry amongst commentators that, you know, the automation will speed up and suddenly there'll be, you know, we'll have no retail assistance or anybody involved in the driving industry, whether you drive big trucks or taxis or cars of any persuasion, all of those sorts of jobs will disappear overnight. Again, I'm slightly sceptical about that sort of stuff. But I do think, you know, there is a concern or a bit of a worry that the scale of it will also be a significant factor in our ability to respond. So in terms of our ability to respond, is it what should we be, I mean, it comes back to the education system, right? How should the education system be, be changing to prepare us? For yeah, this? so I think, there's, I think there are two things in that to reflect on, I think. One is, one is on the, what I would class as the kind of supply side, right? So when you look at the schooling or the education system across the country, there, is a, you know, there are large variations in performance, right? So you know, some of our places are struggling to provide their children today with the skills to make them competitive in the labour market as it currently exists, never mind in the future. And those sorts of places typically are in the North and the Midlands. Mm. There are other places then in the South that seem to be doing, doing better. So there are questions about how we can modify and improve our skills and school system to provide our youngsters with, with the skills and the education that they need. But I think there's, a, there's also a bigger question to which I have very little of an answer, but you, you observe it. We have a challenge about how we raise the virtue and the value of education more generally. You know, we have a kind of education system, particularly in the UK, where essentially we intensively put people through education until around 16, 18, 21 at most. And then essentially that's it. You know, they're out into the labour force and that's the end of it. And the kind of value and virtue of lifelong learning, I think, is, is demonstrably lower in the UK than, than it is in other places that we often look at. Things like the Nordic countries have a kind of mm. seem to have a, a more enlightened approach to lifelong learning, perpetual, continual development. It's very hard to understand why that is. 
I've not seen any studies that really give a, a kind of a detailed and articulate answer on that, but it's you observe it. So I think we, you know, we've got a, it's a sort of cultural question about mm. the value of, of education and, the, and how much we place on it, which is a big question for us. I, 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 I don't know if you know this about me, but before doing this job, I actually edited an education magazine. Ah, so you probably know the answer to that question. Uh, well, no, I don't know the answer, but I have a theory. Go on. Which is so much of it is, it, more than in any other bit of public policy, I think, we all tend to respond to our own experiences because yeah. it's so formative. So if you just look at the most basic level, if a minister changes something in the school system, you will get a lot of press yeah. because all the journalists know what it means because they went through the system, like the readers that have met this at chattering classes will have kids in that system. You know, it's just, it connects with people. And the same with university, even though it's only about half the population. If you're mucking around with something like tuition fees, people can kind of have a framework for that. But there are also these things called further education colleges. Absolutely right. That do a ridiculous number of different things. They're kind of, they're trying to do the upskilling for, for the, the, they're responsible for the kids who don't get decent GCSEs these days to kind of get them over the line in English and Maths. Yeah. They do A-level is another sort of level three qualifications like that. They do vocational training. They also do the lifelong learning stuff. You know, the acronyms alone will drive you mad. And it's just much, much harder to get a handle on what these things are for and what they do. Yes. And also a minority of the population of the sort of chattering classes of the kind of, you know, media politics, policy class ever went through this this system. So there isn't that instinctive grasp in it. No. So it's just self-perpetuating. No, everyone, th- everyone ignores it because it's complicated. Uh, nobody knows. You know. Yes. I think you're absolutely spot on. And you, you can see this about the amount of time and effort and newspaper articles mm. and inches that are, is currently devoted to whether we should or shouldn't change again the tuition fees as relating to higher education. The arguments now is that we need to give further subsidies to those that go to universities, which I'm, you know, I'm against for, you know, for, for a bunch of reasons. And all the while, we make continuing cuts to the further education industry. Like and no one talks no about one it. No one talks about it. No, no one cares I, about it. I, wrote, I mean, I, I wrote an article basically saying exactly that about five years ago again. There's just been a 50% cut to an education budget and no one's No one notices. I got, so I got about half a dozen speaking invites to go and talk. Because at that point, I think I was the only journalist in Britain who'd written about it. Yeah. And I was saying, like, the whole point of this article is I don't know anything about further education. I have nothing to tell you guys. No, no, no. <laughs> But it got me straight to the top of that particular pile because no one else was talking no about it. No one else was. And I think, so, I think that's right. And I think there is, there is something, more, as you were saying, there is something more in that than simply providing, you know, an efficient and an effective FE system for it. You know, there is a cultural aspect to the way mm. that we think about further education. And ironically, you know, when, I, when you go to cities across the country, which we, we do it at the centre of cities, actually trying to improve both the supply of further education colleges and the courses and services that they provide in and bringing youngsters particularly, but also those in the labour market into that system, you know, that would have a demonstrable positive effect Mm. uh, on those places, helping those places prepare, you know, their people for, you know, for what's coming next. And yet we, we largely ignore it and we obsess about, you know, tuition fees at 9,000 or not at all, as it were, depending on different political parties. And I think, you know, that's the, the side game for many of the, the people in the places up and down the country. We've kind of done that. FE is where we really need to, you know, to focus our time and, and effort. But it's not just on the, it's not just making FE better 
I think as a society, we need to value that. You can see this in an interesting conversation around, you know, how we think about the apprenticeship system. A lot of criticism of the apprenticeship, how it's working, but it's wrapped up in how we more, va- more broadly value apprenticeships relative to other things. You go to Germany, apprenticeship system works incredibly efficiently. Why? Well, because the system is efficient, but it's not that. The society, the German society, values apprenticeships very, very highly. And therefore, that's, that's mm. another reason why the, incent- the, the system works. Yeah, it's sort of chicken and egg thing. It is. Right? You know, there's this kind of culture and, and service and provision, I think, is, is really complicated, but definitely an area when we think about what we do about automation, how we prepare our youngsters and our, our workers of today for tomorrow. That's where we need to focus much more time and effort. Well, the unexpected answer to the question of how we're going to defeat the robots is uh, FE colleges. FE colleges. Okay. Who'd have thought? Andrew, thank you. Pleasure. So while I've got you here, or rather while you've got me here, because we're actually in your offices, due to a screw-up where I was accidentally in Lib Dem conference when I shouldn't have been, while I'm talking to you, I'm kind of curious about what's the housing situation like in France? Like, is it... We often hear about this of the German housing market whenever people want to say, well, why, don't, why aren't people happy renting for life? And it's like, well, they, they, do, that. they do that in Germany. It's like, well, in Germany, you can't just evict someone on a whim, basically, is the main reason. So, like, what's what's France like? Is France all owner occupation? Is there a big social housing sector? What's what's the housing market like? So, I think in France, like, sometimes we usually are. We're a bit in the middle. So, we're not quite the UK, but we're not, like, mm. Germany either. So, I do think that there's a real aspiration to owner occupation in France. It is much easier to become a homeowner in France because interest rates are extremely low, but also interest rates are fixed often. So, for instance, my... My father is, is always baffled. He's like, but you can't get like a loan for like 25 years with exactly the same very, very low interest rates. And I would say, no, it doesn't work like that in the UK. The more you can get is a five-year fixed interest rate. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think it's an important question, actually. It's not something we look at in the report, but the finances and the kind of the mortgage side of house buying. But there's also a lot of people that are renting and that are in tenancies. It's not unusual, for instance, for kind of a family to be renting, even if they're like middle class or something. And there's definitely much more protection for renters. So, for instance, in France, like you get a minimum like three years tenancy. You can give notice to leave to your landlord like after three months, but they have to kind of fulfill much more conditions to be able to do the same. And I've always been very surprised in the UK that not only are tenancies not very long and, you know, subject to rent increases, but you also often have this kind of very long breaking clause at the beginning. So effectively, tenants have got the worst of both worlds. They, mm. they haven't got flexibility at the start, but then they often have to leave quite quickly. I just think that in general, tenants are much more, so for instance, you can't like enter someone's house within their permission. It's just, there's much more protection around like the rights of tenants. You can't evict people during the winter. I don't have stats to back this up, but I get the impression that in France there's less people than end up in temporary accommodation because of like, you know, not mm. being able to pay their rent or Section 21 that they would be in the UK. And that's something that's really spiked in the UK over the last decade yeah. with austerity and changes to the welfare system and so on. This is a number of people who have turned hidden homeless, whether sofa surfing or in B&Bs or whatever, mm. has just gone through the roof. I mean, we were talking about the council housing at the start of this. Do French municipal governments build and own much property? Is that a big sector? 
Well, so in France, there's been a law. I can't remember, the acronym is SRU. And I can't remember what it stands for, but effectively it's a law that, has, that is imposing on councils to have at least 20% social housing in like the municipal boundaries. And the reason behind that is that as a lot of people in, well, in the urban space in the UK know, in France, like we have banlieue, like a lot of council housing has been really like spatially segregated. And I do think that one of the, well, the good things in the UK is that how you get that mix of council housing in like, you know, over 10 years in the center of city. So I think the French government is trying to tackle this and, you know, local authorities can be fined. Mm. So for instance, if they don't, have this 20% of like social housing target and anecdotally you get like this local authority in the Parisian West that don't find social housing and get like huge fines because they're not like tackling the need. Oh, those are like the posh bits around like, yeah, you know, like newly in places. Newly like in, yeah, yeah, and all of this. But it's been one way to try to provide more social housing. In France, we've got the equivalent of housing association also playing an important role in like providing housing. But it's quite different because, for instance, like, I'm not from Paris, but in Paris, like, the inner Paris is nowhere near as big in terms of that, you know, London with, like, the 32 boroughs. There's, like, mm. 20 arrondissements, but they don't have as many powers in terms of house building. So you could say that historically, I think London boroughs probably, you know, did more council house building, but also so the urban fabric in Paris is also very different, already quite dense. And it's not been, there's not been as much like destruction effectively mm. as there's been in London following World War Two. Well, I mean, Paris kind of did that in the 19th century rather than the 20th, didn't it? With like, the, the With Prussian Houseman. invasions yeah. and Hausmann and Napoleon III and all that. Actually, that's, that's kind of circle back to where we started. We were talking about boroughs, but I mean, historically, a major contribution to London's social housing supply was actually first the London County Council, which actually built many of the larger uh, many of the big cottage estates in, yeah. in outer London, like Beckentry and Downham and so on, and more recently the GLC. Do you think there is a role for the the GLA, the current Greater London Authority, as well as the, the boroughs that sit beneath it? Yeah, I think, yeah, definitely, because there could be the GLC that you just mentioned in LCC where, well, actually the GLC was at some points building par- in parallel to like boroughs' efforts. So you could have... A regional metropolitan like body building more housing and then councils building more housing as well i mean at the moment the gla is more of an enabler rather than a builder but i definitely do think that there should be at least a role for the gla in, in playing a much bigger role to kind of encourage collaboration i mean i think it'd be fantastic if there was a push for like the public sector and local authority and the gla to come together and say i don't know we're building Homes for Londoners, effectively, but in a much more like high-profile way that people would understand. I think it's important. The GLA has got an important role to play because one thing with local housing companies, which I haven't mentioned before, is that they can buy sites outside of their borough boundaries. Mm, okay. Obviously, there's a big problem at the moment with capacity among local authorities. They have a hard time finding the development people, the project managers the architects, the planners, etc., to kind of build more housing. And you wouldn't want to end up in a position where wholly owned companies would compete just like a private developers would do to build housing. There needs to be a coordinated approach. So in the report, we call for the mayor in his housing strategy. I said that he would consider the potential to collaborate and effectively we call for him to 
try to concretize this a bit more. It is tricky because in London, like, you know, you can't really work by, let's say, like, I don't know, cardinal points or just political colors because you have to find these borders that would work well together. Mm. And some of them do that naturally. But then there might be some areas where it's harder. Obviously, you're from the centre for London. We're talking about this very much as kind of a London thing. But do you think it is more than that? Like, should the councils in the rest of the country be getting back into the council building game as well? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, they already are. So even for our report, like, focused on London, I'm aware that there are several councils in the rest of England, at least, that are doing this. So, for instance, Sharewell District Council, like, set up a community organization which is effectively like like a local housing company but non-for-profit and I think they aim to deliver like the types of tenures that would not get delivered by other market actors. Um, this is just on the outskirts of Oxford right? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah exactly. Another one in the southeast is Brighton and Hove City Council. I've also got like a wholly owned local company and they're looking to deliver more homes through that. I mean I know there are like many different angles in all the London region. And actually, there's been a paper done by UCL, by Janice Morfett and Ben Clifford at UCL, which looks at delivering more housing across England. Mm. Uh, so that was done for the Royal Town Planning Institute. But for instance, they mentioned like Nottingham has got one. So there are lots of different examples. And I think councils are becoming much, much more active, just not in London, but in England. Well, I suppose the, the problem that's kind of led London councils to do it, a lot of it is kind of nationwide, isn't it? It's austerity and the lack of affordable housing. So. Absolutely, yeah. Just to kind of wrap up, I'm curious, not just in terms of council housing, but are you optimistic about London meeting its sort of broader housing targets? Do you think the kind of 50,000, 60,000 homes a year projected in the London plan which is a good two or three times what the city's been doing recently. Do you think that's doable? Do you think we're going to get there? I mean, I definitely think it's a challenge and the targets of the London plan keep becoming bigger because, as you say, we're not building enough. So they so you end up the backlog, basically. Yeah. I think effectively that's what it is. It's like a backlog for a need. And also when you look at like the strategic housing market assessment, so it's a technical term, but, you know, 47% of this needs to be effectively social rented and affordable. So it's not only like, you know, how many housing units we deliver, it's actually how affordable they're going to be for people. And in order to become affordable, well, I think it's complex because there's both, you know, there's the supply side, obviously, accelerating housing delivery. And one way to do that could get to get other actors or to find ways to incentivize private developers to build faster, to improve affordability through having just like more homes effectively. But there's also the demand side in London, which can be quite complex, like some of like, you know, the government mechanisms around help to buy. Are they really the right thing? Should we be thinking around actually building around providing better tenancies, built rent? But it is it is hard to answer that question. I mean, I do think this is, it's, a, it's a very ambitious target. That said, we definitely do need to build more than what we've done like in the previous year. So to sum up in one word, maybe. Yeah, sorry, it's not a very clear answer, is it? I mean, it's probably it's probably a reasonable answer. It's probably an honest answer. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the new statesman city site. 
It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there, why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show, and I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.